I'd like to talk about how stealth technology started with Lockheed. And that actually started back in the U-2 program in the late 50s. It was known that the Soviets were building advanced missile systems to shoot down aircraft with guided missiles. And the fact of it is, is the U-2 from 1954 on was flying over Moscow typically photographing a lot of things in the Soviet Union. So there was a stealth program to stealthize the U-2. They looked into the fact that they could reduce the signature of the U-2 about two orders of magnitude. And my boss at that time used computer simulations to simulate that fact. And in April of 1959, he told Kelly Johnson, even reducing the signature of the U-2 by two orders of magnitude, was insufficient and that the U-2 would be shot down by a Soviet radar-guided missile. Kelly immediately, the next day, took my boss to the Pentagon and they immediately started the A-12 program. Later on, the Yom Kippur War showed the United States that we had to have a different way because we, we found that the Soviet radar guided missile systems were so effective. We could not penetrate the Soviet Union with impunity, and so therefore DARPA was started with the program to build, quote, an invisible airplane. That was Dennis Overholzer, the man who conceived of the idea of faceted plates on an aircraft making it invisible to radar. During conflicts like Vietnam and the Yom Kippur War, radar-guided missiles were a huge threat to aircraft. As they say, necessity is the mother of invention, and the creation of what would eventually become the F-117 Nighthawk was no exception. Today we're going to hear from a lot of people who worked on the F-117 when it was both classified and unclassified. Now, I started in 1981. This is Ed Burnett. He's a Lockheed Martin Senior Fellow and started working on the F-117 program a few years into his career at the Skunk Works. And I, I remember quite vividly, June, I had just started in April and everybody disappeared. I mean, it's just like, all my coworkers just kind of all wandered off one afternoon. And, and so I was like, hmm, that's kind of strange. You know, what's, what's going on? And I said, oh, don't worry about it. They're just having a big party. And later on, when I got cleared, I realized that, that okay, that was the first flight day. I didn't get cleared in for another couple of years after that. They offered up simulation. So I, I walked in and my first exposure to a 117 was, there's the cockpit. Nothing else with the airplane, but just the cockpit. And you had just stick drawings, effectively, of the airplane. So you really didn't get a feel for what it really looked like. Because we were doing simulation, I probably had more exposure than a lot of engineers who were very limited because I was seeing the flight controls. I was seeing the, the cockpit, the avionics, pilot training, both the Lockheed pilots and the Air Force pilots and doing all the rehearsals. And then 1988, there was a picture came out in Aviation Week, and it was really fuzzy, and it's kind of like, well, gee, is that really, you know, that's not the impression I got from the drawings I'd seen. 
And a little later on, it got to actually see the real airplane. It's like, okay, well, that's more like the drawings in that first initial fuzzy picture. So, so the first time you saw the full airplane was in Avweek? Uh, yeah. That's insane. We didn't have that much need to go down there, and everything was based on need to know. Denny Overheiser found this very obscure Russian paper that had kind of the keys to the kingdom that described how to calculate, based on angle, a reflection of radar or other sources of light off of a plate. Probably the, the best analogy I can give is, is putting on a flashlight or one of those little headlamps and going into a dark room with a mirror. When you look in the mirror, you're going to see that light reflect back to you very brightly. Well, if you can imagine if that mirror was turned at an angle, the light coming off your headlamp is going to reflect off a different direction. And so that's kind of the principle behind the, the technology of the 117 is reflect as much as you can and what you can't reflect, absorb. And so he started to play around with that. Can he create a computer code that would do that? So once you did it on one plate, once you did it on one, could you do it if it was two plates next to each other? It's next to each other. He just kept expanding, kept expanding and testing as he went that algorithm. And that really became the Echo One program, which kind of became the foundation of how to make the, the vehicle disappear, if you will. The same time DARPA was working on some of their ideas, I think it was called Project Harvey. If people remember, the, there was a play and a movie called Harvey about an invisible six-foot rabbit. I was introduced to a man by the name of Dick Shearer, who was the program manager of the Harvey program. I had a discussion with Dick Shearer and he asked me, well, how would you build an airplane that would be invisible? And I said, the lowest cross-section radar signature surface is one that is a flat surface where the edges are not normal to the radar. So you would basically make this aircraft out of a bunch of flat surfaces. Well, he immediately told me, well, None of the experts say this. And I say, well, you asked. But he believed me enough. He was the head of operations research, a good friend of mine that introduced us, had uh, helped me convince him that there was merit to this. So Dick Shearer went off and designed a target, which was then dubbed the Hopeless Diamond. The challenge of faceted aircraft is to create an aerodynamic shape. As you know by now, this is Steve Justice. And the very first shapes that were tested out at the radar range were called hopeless diamonds. Because the hopeless term applying to the fact that there was just no way that those things could fly. So as you look at the evolution of the hopeless diamond to the have blue configuration, you can gradually see the faceted shapes becoming more complex as you see a, a cockpit form on the aircraft, real wings. The ECHO program that allowed 
the engineers to predict the signature of these faceted shapes was absolutely critical in this evolution. The amount of stealth technology that existed prior to the F-117 was actually quite extensive, but the type of, of levels that we were looking for were far lower than anything that had existed before. And so the technology that allowed us to jump to this next level down of signature was shaping itself. As Kelly Johnson was approaching retirement, Ben Rich was selected to be his successor to take over the Skunk Works. And while Kelly was retired, his presence was still very much felt. Kelly was still coming into the office a lot. And Ben knew he was not a Kelly Johnson. He had a very different skill set than Kelly that was critical. And so he didn't even try to be Kelly Johnson. He told the team that during the transition. You know, I'm not Kelly. I'm going to handle things differently. Um, but that also meant that there was, you know, kind of some strife inside there. There was kind of the, the new skunks, which were the, the guys working for, for Ben that Ben had brought on board, and the, the old skunks that had worked for Kelly. In the configuration search for Have Blue, you can see these two groups battling with each other. There's the blended configurations that look very much like variants of a D-21 drone that were the old skunks, and these faceted configurations that don't even look like airplanes that were created by the new skunks under Ben. Kelly believed that airplanes needed to, to look good. You know, they. They needed to look right. He told Ben very clearly that Ben needed to, to switch back to a blended configuration. And, and Ben explained to him, if we don't do this faceted, we don't stand a chance of making the signatures in here. You know, it was, it was Kelly. We have to do it this way. Ben Rich and uh, Kelly Johnson had a dispute over which kind of target would have the lowest cross-section because Kelly bet Ben Rich a cup of coffee that the DS-21 would have a lower signature than this so-called hopeless diamond idea. Well, the fact is, Ben Rich told me later, he said, you know, Dennis, he said, that's the only time I ever won a cup of coffee from Kelly. So it turned out that the Hopeless Diamond had a signature more than an order of magnitude better than the DS-21. Ben really wanted to put things in the context that everyone could understand without misinterpretation. He would first get you comfortable with where you are before he took you to where you needed to be. He would give descriptions such as, you know, the radar cross-section of an aircraft carrier is the equivalent of a ball a quarter of a mile in diameter. A truck driving down the street is the equivalent of a basketball. A radar cross-section of a basketball can be seen as far away as a radar can see. So when you come over the horizon, over the curvature of the Earth, you're seen. Usually by this point, one of the one of the customers intervenes. So you know, how big is the radar cross section? Is it that of an eagle? I remember one of Ben's quotes was, "No, how about the size of an eagle's eyeball?" 
And so this is where the rolling the marble out across the floor. No, we're talking about a radar cross-section the size of, of this marble. And imagine how difficult that would be to detect if you had these other radar cross-sections up in the sky. A stealth aircraft would not be seen. So the, the faceted shape that was on Half Blue and the 117 combined with the radar-absorbing structures, radar-absorbing materials, stealthy apertures, that was the key to creating this integrated system of a low-observable attack aircraft. One of the things that hit the team in this day and time was these shapes were not as efficient as... Uh, the nice blended shapes like you would see on the U-2 or SR-71. And in this particular case, the driving technology need was to be survivable, not to have peak aerodynamic performance. This was tough culturally for a lot of people to accept. It it made the, the airplane very difficult to fly. One of the other really critical technologies that was emerging at the time was the technology of fly-by-wire flight control systems that allowed unstable aircraft to fly. And I remember talking with Dick Cantrell, the lead aerodynamicist uh, on, on Have Blue, and, and even on the 117. He explained quite honestly that they were going to have to teach the aircraft how to fly. It was going to take the augmentation of its stability by computers in order to allow this aircraft to fly in a normal manner. This, this concept of computers that fly airplanes is a little tough to, to understand, so let's walk through what's really happening here. What I want you to do is imagine that you have a, a four-foot-long stick in your hands. In an unstable system, it's the equivalent of holding your hand out, palm up, and balancing the stick on your hand. And if you'll notice, your hand has to move left, right, and forward and aft to keep the stick balanced in the air. And so if you can imagine that the airplane is the stick, your hand are the control surfaces of the airplane that control roll, pitch, and yaw, your brain is the flight computer, and your eyes are this data system that looks for the aircraft to start to diverge from its normal flight path, your eyes will see the, the stick start to tip to one side. Your brain will process that you need to move your hand to one side to correct that. And then you'll send that signal down to your hand to correct and bring the stick back to an upright position. In an unstable aircraft, you have all of those systems working to keep the airplane, as, as Paul Martin used to say, pointy nose into the wind. The pilot never senses the aircraft diverging. In engineering terms, for those of you that want to get into kind of the science of this, it's basically trying to update the, the attitude of the aircraft every quarter of a second, which is a time span that's down below the pilot's threshold to keep the airplane pointy end into the wind. Some pilots are good enough to fly an unstable aircraft to those kind of stability levels, but it takes so much work uh, so much concentration on part of the pilot that they would become fatigued very, very quickly, and the vast majority of pilots are just not able to control an airplane like that, and so the airplane would tumble out of control. 
got a phone call one day saying, show up for a briefing. I go to this conference room, they have us sign this piece of paper and they say, we're briefing you on the F-117 Nighthawk stealth fighter. It's not called the F-19 and went through this short little discussion of what it was. Didn't show us any pictures of it. And I remember I stepped out of the briefing and I go, wow. And my boss goes, he was waiting outside the conference room and he goes, follow me. And we walk over to 309, 310, the assembly building where the F-117s were in final assembly. As we, we step into the building, he says, don't look over there, look towards this side of the building. And we went up these flights of stairs up to the fourth level mezzanine. And he goes, okay, look. And I remember looking out over and seeing that arrowhead down below me. And I remember the actual words in my head were far out. And I thought, look at this. This is a production line for a secret airplane that's literally a hundred yards from Hollywood Way. There's people up there driving up and down to the studios and all that kind of stuff. And right behind these doors sits this secret production line and everybody out there thinks they know what it looks like and they don't. The building we were in was called Building 90 and it had four floors in it. The bottom two floors were occupied by the ATF program and the top two floors were occupied by the F-117 program. General Dynamics Boeing and Lockheed people would file in through the front entrance of Building 90 to get to the first two floors. And the F-117 people, known then as the N program, would come in through doors in the back of the building so that they wouldn't see this group of people so easily piling into the building. When you would be on the second floor of Building 90, you would see this, this set of escalators that went up into the ceiling and the sheetrock of the ceiling just went and kind of sealed off right at the escalator steps. And one of my friends asked, where, where does that escalator go? And the answer was nowhere. When they were gonna move an F-117 out of the factory and out into the open when the airplane was still black or unacknowledged, they went through and played some tricks on the human eye to deceive people as to what shape of, of hardware they were moving around. And so there was this set of frames made out of wood that had corners poking out of them that were put on top of the 117 itself before the canvas was draped across it that gave it the weirdest look you've ever seen. You would never be able to, to know what the real life shape was. You know, bumps sticking out of it and, and it wasn't pointy, it was very square looking. You know, it reminds me of the uh, moving the XP-80 out to Muroc Lake, which is now Edwards Air Force Base. They put a fake propeller on it, so it looked like a, a propeller airplane when they were out moving it around. There was a time in the late 1980s, uh, I was working on a proposal, and I stepped out of the engineering building at about one or two in the morning, and the airport was pitch black. And it was like, oh, oh no, you know, they're, they're moving an inn around. And, and I remember thinking, oh man, uh, and I couldn't get back into the building to, to just go wait it out. So I'm, I'm walking across the parking lot to my car and here comes this pickup truck driving at me with no, no lights on. And I remember thinking, you know, I'm gonna get hit standing out here because it was, 
even though you're in the middle of the San Fernando Valley, it was still relatively dark, and I was wearing dark clothes. So I just kind of stood really still. There was no light stanchion to stand next to to avoid being hit. I stood really still, and the, the pickup truck pulled up beside me. And here was the guard was wearing, like, these first-generation of night-vision goggles. Uh, at the time, they were extremely cool, but in retrospect, they were pretty clumsy-looking. Um, he goes, can I see your badge? So I showed him my my company badge, and he goes, not that one. And he, he wanted to see the, the program badge. And he saw that I was briefed on the 117 program. I had an N on my badge. And he goes, where are you going? So well, I'm going to my car. And he goes, okay, we'll go to your car and wait till the lights come on. Kind of listened to the radio, and he said, we'll cover up the dial so that no lights come out. I was kind of like, okay. And so I went to my car, and I sat there. And I sat there for two or three hours um, before the lights came on. Right before the lights came on, I heard that wah of the, the C5 taking off. And right after the C5 departed, the lights at the airport came on, and uh, I was able to drive home. Of course, my, my wife was really concerned because I had called her right before I left the plant, and it was like a 10, 10 or 12-minute drive home, and here I was hours later. And this was before cell phones, so you couldn't, couldn't alert her. There was, I couldn't get back into any buildings, and so that was just one of those times. I think one of the big things was as I came onto the program, I was exposed to a, just a phenomenal set of engineers and pilots. Uh, Bob Loschke, who did the flight controls development, Hal Farley, Dave Ferguson, Tom Morgenfeld, uh, John Beasley was the predominant Air Force pilot at that time. There was a great camaraderie. The test pilots that we have are engineers. They just are doing engineering in a slightly different way. They're in there saying, this is, this is the true requirement. I know this is what you wrote down in, in your requirements document, but what I really need to do is this, and helping us get rid of some of the, the wording to really understand the need. I hired into the F-117. As Ed mentioned in the clip before, this is Tom Morgenfeld, junior test pilot of the F-117 program, who later went on to be the chief test pilot of the X-35. The test pilot community is a real small community. So people knew that several of us disappeared into the skunk works, and they can put two and two together. They can figure something's going on. And bless their hearts, those people are the ones you don't need to worry about because they know you can't say, so they're not going to be pinging on you to tell us the secret, Tommy. It pumps you up like you've never been pumped up before. It's a kind of forbidden fruit kind of a thing. You know, nobody knows we're doing this. this is so cool. I would have to say this is going to sound corny, but it's true. Inside each of the hangars, you'd be sitting in there, and inside the front door of the room was an American flag. And I remember going out for my first flight, being pretty pumped up for my first flight in the F-117, and just looking up and seeing the flag there. Boy, my heart got pounding. I went, Holy smoke, we're going to do something important here. That was a that was a big deal to us. And just being able to fly the airplane is an incredible privilege. The main driver with the F-117 was we never wanted to be seen by any uh, reconnaissance satellites. So we, I don't know how they do it. It's not my, not my job, but we had fair knowledge of when satellites would be coming over. So we couldn't fly. We had to be in the barn during those times. They're very 
every day. So the flight schedule was always somewhat uh, dependent on when we'd get these satellite flyovers. The hangars had front and back doors. So we'd get in and man up, get all strapped in, all ready to go. They'd open the doors and we'd start the engines in the hangar and just taxi out and take off. Every once in a while, you get one, oh, gee, there's a new satellite just popped up. There was a place you could just taxi in, and they'd close the doors, hide. This was early on. My, my responsibility on the F-117 was airplane number three, ship number three. The first two were flight test-specific. The cockpits were not representative of the fleet. So I was the airplane that was first fleet-configured F-117. And we were going pretty fast. My recollection is this happened within like the first six months we were flying. Anyway, um, about the third flight of that airplane, I've been told, go up and uh, we've made some display changes. We just want to have your opinion, you know, as the sunlight washing them out. And you know, so, okay, easy, easy flight, nice day. But just as I rotated for takeoff, uh, the radio exploded. And I, so I thought, something's, something's wrong here. I don't, I had no idea what was wrong. Something's wrong. So I just left the gear down, did a climb out. Every airplane's looking good. I'm not feeling anything. So when everything calmed down, what happened was my nose wheel had fallen off. At, uh, when the airplane rotated, the, the nose wheel just kept bumming down the runway. So we talking at the control room, and they said, oh, boy, what are we going to do? I said, well, the airplane's flying great. I'll leave the gear down. The displays don't care whether the gears up or down, because you didn't know if something was wrong. If I retracted the gear, I might not get any of them down. So I left the gear down, and I said, I'm going to go do the test cards, and you tell me what you want me to do. So I flew around, looked at the displays, and did, did the test cards. And came time to come back to the field. I said, okay, what are we going to do? He said, well, we've talked this over, and we think the airplane's going to somersault when you land, so we want you to go to the controlled ejection area and jump out of the airplane. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, that's a bit extreme. A um, couple things going on in my mind. Number one, the airplane I flew in the fleet, we used to see a lot of broken nose gears just because it was a difficult airplane to land. I wasn't too worried about that myself. The other thing was this is the very first real F-117. It would have set the program back, I don't know, months, years maybe, to – so I – jump out of it? No. I said, tell you what you do. You put some foam on that runway. I'm pretty sure it's going to be okay. So sure enough, I burned down to minimum fuel and landed. And I got a great picture of me coming down the runway with sparks and junk coming off the nose gear and whatever. Came to a halt. All is well. We, uh, changed out the inner barrel of the nose strut, and that airplane flew on for years and years and years. It's the one that's at Holloman Air Force Base now with a popsicle stick in its heart, I guess, sticking up there. So it was a it was a win for everybody, right? And that happened, I think, maybe on a Tuesday. I, I'd have to go back and look at the calendar. But when we got flown back into Burbank on Friday, uh, Sue Schubert, our flight ops boss, if you will, said, hey, uh, Ben wants to see you. Ben Rich was. And I said, oh, okay. He said, but he sounded angry. I go, oh, really? Holy smoke. So 
Now I'm a little conflicted. I'm, I'm I'm a brand new contractor guy, right? I don't know how contractors work. If it was, I know a couple of guys that had problems with airplanes in the Air Force. They get an air medal. Well, we don't get medals here in Lockheed. I thought, but I'm a contractor. Maybe there'll be a large cash award or something. I don't know. Bonus. I don't know. I gave him back an airplane. They told me to ditch, right? So, I don't know. But he sounded angry. So I trundle on over to to the head shed, and I walk into Ben's office, outer office, and June Rice, the secretary, was there. Another brilliant gal. She was allegedly on the phone. And so I kind of pointed myself. I said, Ian, Ben, see me? And so she nods and gives me the go-ahead. And she just, she's shaking her head. Holy smoke. Now I'm really, my guts are churning. So I walk into Ben's office. And there's Ben Rich and Kelly Johnson, both of them, in the office. And Kelly, I don't know if you've heard stories about Kelly, but he could be fierce. I mean, he could be fierce. And he's looking daggers at me. Ben's not happy looking, and I think, now my guts are churning. I don't think I did anything wrong. And so I said, yes, sir, you wanted to see me? And Ben says, yeah, sure do. I heard you had a problem this week. And I said, well, yes, sir, but I think it turned out okay. And Kelly's just shaking his head no. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, what in the world happened that I don't know about? And I said, sir, is there some kind of problem Kelly says, hell yes, there is. Look at this. And he hands me, it's a union grievance sheet for having an unqualified person grinding on a nose strut without the proper union training or whatever. It was a complete put on. At that point, big smiles and handshakes. I just about died right there at that point after they realized that I wasn't going to have a heart attack. We chat a little bit, say, oh, sit down, tell us how it's going. I was the junior test pilot on that program. And to have Kelly and Ben sit down, tell me what you think. I thought that was most impressive. And the fact that the president of the, the whole company and, and a living legend besides him would take the time to do nothing but a good wind-up. And I appreciate a good wind-up now and again, and they, they got me good. One of my favorite stories. I still have the grievance sheet. During this period, my mother said, oh, I know what you're doing. You're flying UFOs. I know you are. And uh, I'd see some TV show coming on, you know, 60 Minutes, UFOs, are they real? And I'd call up my mom and say, Mom, Sunday night, 7 o'clock, Channel 4. Can't tell you why. Click. <laughs> and for the last introduction of this episode, this is Jim Brown. He was a test pilot for the F-117, but after the program was declassified. He's now the vice president and chief operating officer for the National Test Pilot School in Mojave, California. I had actually interviewed with Dave Ferguson two years prior, actually three years prior. What happened after that was the Soviet Union fell and the big defense budget cuts occurred. So I stayed in uh, touch with Dave Ferguson, and then one day out of the blue, he calls me up and said, Hey, you want to come fly the F-117? I said, Absolutely. I was flying for United Airlines at the time, and... Pretty bored. <laughs> so I had actually seen the airplane a few months before it came out of the Black World. I was flying an F-15 in one of the ranges north of uh, Las Vegas, and this weird thing came flying by. And the uh, radar controller said, hey, did you see that? Yeah, yeah, what was that? And he goes, well, we'll have some paperwork for you when you get on the ground. So. Immediately uh, sworn to silence, this, that, and the other. To 
make an F-117 stealthy, there was indeed a stealth switch. You flipped the switch, but what it did was retracted the antennas inside the airplane. Antennas make a very natural, large radar reflector, so you want to get rid of those. As I remember, I think our navigation system could hold 400 navigation points. So you may be turning every 10 seconds on a route into a target and back out. In the mid-1990s, the Air Force started bringing their bandits, the F-117 pilots, to the Skunk Works to get a series of briefings to give them just a better understanding of the jet they were flying. On one of these trips, Colonel Feast was with them. Colonel Feast, callsign Beast, was the first pilot into Baghdad on night one of Desert Storm. Everybody else was in wagon train formation, so lined up behind him, headed into Iraq. He had been briefed that the city would have been blacked out, you know, no traffic and heavy, heavy defenses firing. And he said, as I flew in, it, w it was like Vegas, even though it was 2 o'clock in the morning. There were traffic on the streets. Um, the city was very much alive. And so he described what it was like putting his aim point on the target, releasing the weapon, and he said as soon as the bomb went off, the guns and missiles started firing. Now, this is kind of hard to imagine, but, you know, imagine a city, you know, a big metropolitan city where there are gun emplacements on tops of all the hotels or surface-to-air missile sites throughout the city. It was the most heavily defended city on the face of the earth at this time. He could see the, the tracer rounds coming up above his altitude. They were shooting surface-to-air missiles up all unguided because they couldn't detect and they were just trying to fill the air with as much metal as they could. Uh, Greg said that he uh, pushed the throttles up to go ahead and exit the, the target area and made a turn towards his second target, which was about 100 nautical miles distant. He saw it erupt and anti-aircraft fire as well as surface-to-air missile firings. He could have opened up his antennas and warned all the people following him, but they had all their antennas folded away to be in stealth mode, so that was kind of pointless. So he pressed on, hit his second target, turned back towards Saudi Arabia, and when he got back over Saudi Arabia, opened up the antennas and began listening for his bandits to call in. And I think this was like 1994, you know, two or three years after Desert Storm, and you could still hear the emotion in his voice about what it was like to hear each bandit calling in. And, and his realization that everyone had made it through. Took off about one o'clock in the morning. I'd been flying for four hours or so. Uh, up north of Las Vegas, where there's very little population, no lights on the ground, hardly at all. And in fact, the ground looked very much like the sky. The lights were scattered enough for it to be stars. Like. And the sun was approaching the eastern horizon just enough so you could see it. And in an infinitesimally small line above the horizon of light, you could see every color of the rainbow. And I'm just talking, I can't describe how thin it was, but you could see every color of the rainbow then about a fist distance above that was just a sliver of a new moon, you know, just a crescent moon. And just above that was Venus. And 
you know, I had long enough, you know, maybe 10 seconds to look at that. And it just gave me, it's giving me chills right now to, to think about that view. And then I had to, you know, go and do the next test. I did a lot of the night flying because the airplane was designed to fly at night, and so we did a lot of the weapons development work at night. And you get in kind of your own little red-lit womb in, the, in there, and you look out and you see the stars and see how gorgeous it is looking out. I always remember coming back and shutting the engine down, hopping out, and just feel that cool air in the middle of the night. You know, it's always chilly up there, so feeling the cool air. It was just a very peaceful thing, and yet at the time you're working your little fanny off to get all the, the test cards done. You'd be all wrapped up with it, all of a sudden, heading back to the field, you could look up and say, oh, wow, gosh, it's beautiful tonight. I hadn't really noticed that. I've been living in this little enclosure for such a long time. It was, it was fun. Like I say, I'd still be doing it if I could, if somebody let me. <laughs> Inside Skunk Works is produced inside the Skunk Works in Palmdale, California. Our next episode will be released on April 22nd. Stay tuned for a sneak peek. To see photos from our archives of the F-117, visit our show notes at LockheedMartin.com slash Inside Skunk Works. Right from the start, I was, number one, the only pilot on the program and other people started coming aboard. And I said... I'm going to make this easy for you. If you would rather have a younger pilot do this, I will accept that and go. I just want to do what's best for the program. And he says, nope, you're the guy. <laughs>